No one talks about the Fab Five any longer. <laughs> yeah, we never see. Whatever yeah, happened to those guys? Yeah, we do. We're doing thirty on thirties on Yugoslavia, and all their basketball players are pushed out to Indiana. It's not, yeah, it's not once brothers; it's once triplets. Like this is the you know, along with <laughs> Divac and uh, and Petrovic. This is the other guy. You know, I mean, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, yeah, no, that was that was a fascinating chapter to say the least. These are the tales of college basketball past as you've never heard them before. Our guests tell stories blending team seasons, on and off court moments, memories of personal fandom catastrophe and elation, and yes, alcohol. I'm Jeremy. I'm Matt. And I'm Pat. We do the work, you tell the story. These are the college basketball stories. I'm Galen Clavio, co-host of Crimson Cast, and I'm going to tell you the story of the 1992-93 Indiana Hoosiers. Back in the early 1990s, what we think of as Indiana basketball then was kind of what we think of Duke basketball now. It was among the premier programs, if not the premier program in college basketball history, or at least during that time period. Um, the the idea for the last 20 years there, from about 1973 until uh, right there in the early 90s, was, you know, Indiana was the gold standard for programs in college basketball. They'd won three national titles, uh, starting off with that undefeated national title in 1976 and an almost undefeated season the previous year in 1975 they'd come back six years later won the national title in 1981 and then won it six years after that in 1987 Uh, winning national titles was just what happened under bob knight at indiana university and the 1992-93 season was shaping up as another one of those years. Uh, it even had the great preamble year, just like 76 had had with 75. Just like in 1981, they had led that uh, season off with the 1980 season that featured uh, new IU coach Mike Woodson, freshman Isaiah Thomas, and most of the supporting cast from that 81 team winning the Big Ten title and making it uh, to the regional finals that year. Uh, the same thing was setting up in 1993, because the previous year in 1991-92, IU had come close to winning the Big Ten. They'd lost it on the final day of the season, but then they turned around and made it all the way to the Final Four, lost a very questionable game to the Duke Blue Devils, a game that a lot of IU fans still angrily point to as the moment that they got screwed on the biggest stage uh, by the referees, and there might be some truth to that argument, quite frankly. But it was okay because even though they lost a couple of key pieces off of that 91-92 team, forward Eric Anderson, uh, who recently passed away, uh, and then also Jamal Meeks, who was a very important guard, they still had the core of that team. They had the likely candidate for National Play of the Year coming back as a senior in Calvert Chaney. Uh, They had uh, just an incredible shooting guard who a lot of times gets lost in the annals of history, Greg Graham on that team. They had a sophomore, Alan Henderson, who as a freshman had really impressed everybody with the way that he was able to hold the post down. They had Damon Bailey, who of course 
was on the cover of Sports Illustrated as an eighth grader and had had a storied high school career, which culminated in winning awesome. the Indiana high school basketball title in front of 45,000 fans or something like that at the Hoosier Dome. Um, they had a lot of other great pieces as well. Matt Nover, who would later go on to fame and I guess maybe not fortune, but certainly fame as Ricky Rowe in the movie Blue Chips. Uh, just just a lot of really interesting pieces on that team. And they come into this 1992-93 season, and I think pretty much everybody, certainly myself as a 13-year-old at the time, looked at that team and said, this is it. Uh, this is the next national championship. This will be the sixth banner. Uh, this will clearly cement Bob Knight as the greatest coach of his era and maybe of all time. Yes, he was never going to match John Wooden's 10 national titles, but Bob Knight was coaching in a much more competitive era. Uh, and, you know, they, it just felt like this was going to be a coronation sort of season. And that was essentially the state of the program as we entered into the 1992-93 campaign. There was a lot of confidence. Team wasn't ranked first. That honor, I believe, belonged to the Fab Five in Michigan, who had captured everybody's hearts and minds by running to the national title game the previous year. But for IU, I think most IU fans looked at that five, Fab Five team and said, that's a team we can beat. They looked at the rest of the Big Ten and said, these are teams that we can beat. And it's just a matter of getting a few more contributions in a few more places and finishing off the business that was started the previous year. The thought was probably that this is the the sixth banner team. How many times over the, you know, what, like 30 years since has that been the feeling like this might be the, the sixth banner team? I think the only other year that it felt like that going into the season was mm -hmm. 2012, 2013, 20 years later. Uh, yeah, that team and that team was actually higher ranked than the 92, 93 team. They were they started off ranked number one. They were still number one at the end of the season. Cody Zeller. Victor Oladipo, Yogi Ferrell, Jordan Halls. Oh, yeah. I mean, that 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 was the only other time I can remember. I mean, certainly they made it to the national title game in 2002, but no one thought that team was going to do that. Uh, even even when they beat Duke, I don't think people thought they were actually going to get to the final four. Uh, so, yeah, the 2012-2013 is literally it. Did... Did it, do you think it almost helped that Michigan was higher ranked? You know how, like, you know, in the sense of the light, take some conference pressure off? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, the it's one of the unsung aspects of that IU team, I think, both years. Because there was a lot of hype around the Fab Five the previous year. They didn't really become the Fab Five until about, like, kind of at the tail end of their non-conference season. Because they were still starting, like, Jake Voskel or Dugan Fife. Uh, I don't think they started uh, Ray Jackson and, and Jimmy King until around that point. And then they became the Fab Five, and then they went on their run. And that's what most people focused on. Meanwhile, Indiana and Ohio State were, I think, clearly the best teams that year. And going into this year, everybody assumed, oh, the Fab Five has matured. They're going to be, uh, you know, they could go undefeated. They're, they were the darlings of the press. They were the darlings of the casual basketball fan. And it did take a little bit of the focus off of Indiana and I think that team, that IU team, was probably mentally strong enough that even if the focus had been on them, I don't think they would have been bothered. That was one of the most unflappable teams I think I've ever seen in Indiana uniforms. Like they really, they really dealt with pressure very well. I, I would actually argue that they, 
they struggled more when there was less pressure, uh, which happened a few times the previous year where they would blow a team out. They'd win by 30 or 40 at home, and then they'd go on the road and they'd lose by two, and it would be like bad teams. Like I think they beat Purdue the previous year at home by, I think it was 106 to 65. It was some ridiculous margin, and then they turned around and lost to Purdue by two on the road in the final game of the season, and that was not a good Purdue team. Uh, that was the psychology of that team where uh, you know they, they really did thrive under pressure, but it did help to have everybody focused – on Michigan as much as you could be because at that time, you know, it was still Bob Knight was just this huge shadow uh, over the entirety of the college basketball world. And so even with that, you were still going to get a lot of attention on, uh, on IU. It was, it was a revelation because that was the first year. So when I was 10, my family moved into a house that had a big dish satellite and we didn't really know how to use it for the first year. But once (laughs) we figured it out, this was back in the era where you could watch anything. Uh, there was no scrambling, uh, like you could act. So we, my dad and I used to sit up and we'd watch games from all over the country. And, you know, I remember watching like a Utah jazz game one time. And I was, it was like watching something that was coming in from another planet. Like it really felt, uh, like a different <laughs> world. And it was such a disconnected place. You, you know, sports center was showing some highlights, but a lot of college basketball games still weren't televised during this era. And, you think about something, you know, obviously Fab Five or Bob Knight, but you know, even something like Jason Kidd leading a player revolt against Lou Campanelli at Cal and getting him fired halfway through the season. I mean, can you imagine what that would have been like on Twitter? My God, uh, uh, unbelievable! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it probably would have started on Twitter. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah for we sure. certainly would have heard about it first there. Yeah, yeah no, it, yeah. it was. Or, it was, or, and that, or and that, kid would have went to Twitter to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it it's hard to describe because I, I mean, I, I'm a professor. I deal with a lot of students and it's just, it's such a hard era to describe because we were so lucky as IU fans because every game was on television and you know, there was a Bob Knight show that happened every week and all of the local media did everything around IU basketball. So we were blessed compared to a lot of other programs that just didn't have that level of coverage. And so it, it really was interesting you know, as social media came in and as cable came in and there was just the, the coverage on everything now, you, 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 you know, you could legitimately follow like a Horizon League school and probably watch all of their games and be able to know what's going on. You'd be lucky if you saw a box score of a Horizon League, or I guess back then it would have been like the Midwest Collegiate Conference. Uh, it just, it was like you were a detective at that point trying to find this information out. Now I can be sitting in Chicago and bet on a Horizon League playing game for their conference tournament, which I may or may not have done. But uh, uh, yeah, no, d- different times, that's for sure. Uh, so as we kick into 92, I think the, the other interesting fact is they were obviously in the preseason at NIT. Uh, you immediately hit the spotlight of something that matters. You want to be preseason tourney champions to start, especially back then. You do now still, but especially back then. Yeah, and look, IU had a bit of a checkered history with those preseason tournaments. In 89, they had played in Maui. and Or no, I'm sorry. In 89, I think they they had played in the preseason uh, NIT, and they got obliterated. Uh, I think the first time that Bob Knight teams had allowed back-to-back 100-point games against them uh, happened in, in that Maui tournament. And they, they hadn't had a huge amount of luck in those preseason tournaments as far as winning them. But this one felt like 
going to be a really good test. It had a lot of really good teams in it. Not to start, although it was funny because that opening game, they play Murray State, they win by 23. That one was a cakewalk. You got to see a bunch of different players. You got to see guys like Todd Leary come in off the bench and Brian Evans, who was a freshman, who you know would later go on and be a very important player for IU. But then that next game, they play the 17th ranked team in the country in Tulane. Uh, which is which is that's a tough one to have to play. And this was back in the era where, you know, like today, if you're one of the guaranteed seeds, you're going to get even if you lose one of those two first games, you're yeah. going to New York. Not, that back then, no, if Tulane had won that game, they were going. IU built like a 20 point lead in that Tulane game. And then Knight pulls the starters. He puts all the, the reserves in. And that was one of the this actually ends up being a harbinger for the season. So it's not an overly deep team. And the reserves start giving away the lead bit by bit, and it gets down to 16 and gets down to 12. And we're all, I remember sitting there watching with my dad on TV, and we're listening to the radio broadcast. And I'm like, what is going on with this? And then it's down to eight. And I think it might have gotten down to like four. And Knight angrily yanks all the reserves and puts the starters back in, and they, <laughs> they get the margin back up to 10, and that's what it ends up being. They win 102 to 92, and I think Knight spent the entire last three minutes just screaming at the guys on the bench who he'd had to take back out of the game. And um, it was funny at the you mean, time. You mean yeah. coaching? Yeah, well, he was co- coaching. Well, well he, was, he was coaching them, but he was also screaming at them. But uh, it was it was, it was was a harbinger of what would ultimately kind of be this team's undoing in that they they just didn't have really you know consistent players coming off the bench in key roles and that you know it was it shouldn't have been as big of a deal but then injuries started to chip away at the team and that ends up happening a little bit later uh, actually in the next game that they played Uh, because they they beat Tulane and then they're in Madison Square Garden. So, you know, they get the next few days off. They fly out there. Day before Thanksgiving, they play Florida State. And this was a pretty good Florida State team that year. I mean, it was a Florida State team that had uh, Sam Cassell as a senior guard. Bobby Sura was on that team. Charlie Ward was on that team. Uh, this was a Florida State team that probably should have won the ACC if they'd had, you know, more competent head coaching, I think. Um, and IU, it's it's a tight game. It ends up going to overtime, and then at some point, I think either right at the end of regulation or in overtime, Pat Graham goes down in a heap under the basket. And Pat Graham's a name that's kind of been lost to the larger historical context of college basketball. But Pat Graham, you know, the the setup for this season is essentially that in, in the 1989 recruiting cycle, Bob Knight pulled in probably his last truly great recruiting class. And it consisted of six players. Uh, It was Calvert Chaney, who was not Mr. Basketball in Indiana. He was not the most highly regarded recruit. He actually broke his arm, I think, uh, like at the beginning of his senior year of high school. And so he barely played. Greg Graham, who was very highly regarded. um, You had Lawrence Funderburk was part of that recruiting uh, class, which that didn't last very long. Um, Chris Lawson, who was a big seven-foot redheaded kid from Bloomington, played for about a year and a half and transferred to Vanderbilt. Um, Chris Reynolds, who would end up being the point guard on this team and is now an athletic director at Bradley and is on the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee. And then Pat Graham. Pat Graham was the Indiana Mr. Basketball that year. Pat Graham scored like 33 points a game 
his senior year of high school. He was one of the best shooters I think I've ever seen come out of the Indiana high school game. And his freshman year, uh, I think he set the record for most consecutive made free throws in Indiana history. Uh, like that, that was the level of player Pat Graham was. But Pat Graham had real foot problems. He broke his foot his sophomore year and barely played. He tried to come back his junior year. He broke his foot again. And then uh, I don't know if he broke it or something else occurred, but he was essentially he injured himself in this Florida State game and he was out for most of the rest of the season. He would end up coming back in a reduced capacity. Uh, and he would actually play a full season the following year, but he was never quite the same as he was when he first got started. And so uh, that took a key piece that I know Bob Knight was relying on out of the equation. Graham was a big, like, 6'5", two-guard who was, you know, essentially a key part that allowed them to play Damon Bailey in a bunch of different places, allowed them to play other players in different places. And so not having him was certainly hurtful. But they win that Florida State game. And then they beat Seton Hall. And Florida State that year was seventh. Seton Hall was sixth in the country at the time. Um, you know, and, and they win the, the, uh, the preseason NIT, which was a big deal. And it really was like, okay, you just beat a Seton Hall team that had Terry DeHare and Danny Hurley. And, um, you know, I think Luther Wright was on that team. That was a, a pretty good accomplishment. Uh, so even with the Pat Graham loss, it's like, all right, I think we're going to be okay. Team's 4-0. And you're the preseason NIT champions. This is a good way to start the season. So your reward for that is a trip to, uh, I guess, just up the street to Indy, though, to play Kansas. <laughs> it uh, it was, you know, so that series is fascinating, uh, that Indiana-Kansas. I love when Indiana and Kansas play in general. I think those two programs have more in common with each other than most programs have in common with like a lot of times people try to lump indiana and kentucky in, and they are close geographically but yep. culturally those are different programs in a lot of ways uh but uh when roy williams took over at kansas bob knight i think wanted to play them more and kansas two years earlier had derailed the sophomore version of this iu team in the ncaa tournament they made it to the sweet 16 it was like ooh, they, this team might be getting itself together a little bit early and they got smashed by Kansas. I think they lost uh, like 15 or 20 points in that sweet 16 game. And so I was excited. I think everybody was excited to get a chance to play against Kansas. Again, it's at the RCA dome. It ends up being the first of three games that the teams would play uh, against each other. They play this one in a neutral site, quote unquote, neutral site. Uh, and then they would play, Actually, they played four in a row because they ended up playing the following year in Lawrence. They played the year after that in Bloomington, the year after that at Kemper. Um, dynamite game, wonderful game. Uh, ends up being a preview of the NCAA tournament game, which we'll talk about later. And, you know, the, the big problem in this game, it was close, back and forth. Indiana could not hit free throws to save their life in this game. I think they finished four for 13 from the free throw line in this game, and they end up losing by five. 74 to 69. Now, no huge shame in losing to Kansas on a neutral floor early in the season. And that was a good Kansas team. I mean, that was a team, Greg Ostertag, uh, who, you know, was one of those big, you know, kind of the, the, well, big country, Bryant Reeves is the one everybody remembers. But Greg Ostertag was like the original big country. Uh, 7 2 guy. He was only a sophomore that year, but he was he was a problem. But they had Adonis Jordan. They had Rex Walters, who had been at Northwestern and transferred. Uh, Darren Hancock, who was a really good player. 
Eric Pauley, I think, was their starting center that year. So that was a really good Kansas team. Roy Williams had really gotten the program up and running. So not a huge amount of shame losing to that team, but it was still a bit of a shock uh, because I think coming off of the success in New York, having just beaten two top 10 teams, you you thought, okay, they're going to be able to handle this Kansas team. And for an IU team to lose because they miss nine out of 13 free throws, that's a tough one for the IU fan base to swallow. It's tough in 2021. It was tough in 1993 because Bob Knight, so, you know, he his calling card to, to such a large degree was fundamentals. You know, hit your free throws and take good shots and don't turn the ball over. Uh, and it wasn't after this game. It was later on in the season where they won a game, but they missed a bunch of free throws. He made the whole team stay after and shoot free throws for like an hour. Um, I don't think it actually ended up helping at all, but that, and it actually, it comes back to bite them a couple of times later on in the season. But uh, I don't think anybody looked at that loss to Kansas and said, you know what, there's a problem here. I think they were just like, well, good team. We'll hit our free throws next time. I'm probably sure not yelled at him more. Yeah. I'm sure he had, uh, I'm sure he had a lot of words to talk to the media afterwards too. He (laughs) He was, you know, it's funny. He was actually pretty gracious in losses like that. Like, he would come in, he'd answer questions. If someone asked a stupid question, I mean, didn't matter if it was a win or a loss, you were probably going to get um, get the get the hairdryer, as, uh, you know, Sir Alex would call it. But, uh, you know, generally in those losses, he would be pretty philosophical about things. And he, would, he was actually very straightforward a lot of times in just saying, yeah, we had a chance and, and we didn't do the things we needed to do win, and, and the other team did, and... That was essentially how I felt about that game at the time. It was disappointing as a 13-year-old. I was still kind of processing the idea that we shouldn't win all of those games, but it wasn't crushing um, like it would be later on in the season. I think my favorite night post-interview that I came across, I think it was one of the tournament games, and uh, Cheney had like 32-8-4, and and someone asked him in the press conference, I think his quote was, Calvert did a nice job today. Just one yeah. by six words, <laughs> pause, nothing. It was, uh, he was, uh, you know, and part of it with him, and it's funny because when, like, listening to him talk about Calvert afterwards, you know, like later on in his career, he was always like, he's the best player I ever had because all I had to do to motivate him was say, if he was playing bad, just say, Calvert, you're better than this. Like, didn't have to yell at him, didn't have to, you know, go through the mind games that he went through with a lot of other players. Um, and, and Calvert was just that special of a player and, and he would prove that over and over again throughout his four years. And, and yeah, you know, but, but he would rarely, would you see, unless it was a reserve or a bench player or someone he didn't expect to do well, rarely would you see Knight become really evocative about those players (laughs) in post-game press conferences or, or talking to the press. Yeah. So, you know, they come out of that Kansas game and they travel to Notre Dame and this ends up being kind of an interesting game um, in as much as, you know, Notre Dame had been really good for the previous 15 years or so under Digger Phelps. Uh, they had made the Final Four back in the late 70s. They hadn't made a Final Four since then, but they were always a tough team, a challenging team to play against. They had a lot of good players. And then, you know, Digger leaves, I think, the previous year. I think 92 might have been his, his last season. Yep. And this was the first year of the tremendously ill-fated John McLeod era at Notre Dame. And and that was it was a weird hire. John McLeod had been, I think, the head coach for the Dallas Mavericks. And it he just ne- he had some good players. Lafonso Ellis played for him. 
Uh, several other good players came through there. Um, Matt, I'm sorry, I can I can see the look on your face on this. It's it was just strange because for like six years, Notre Dame was on the schedule every year, and they just weren't good. Yeah. And it was hard to get your head wrapped around, especially with what Mike Bray's done with the program since then. The '90s were not generous, uh, so. No, it's it's uh, no, the the Bob Davy, Tyrone Willingham, George O'Leary, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a rough era for them. But anyway, I it was a tough game at uh, at the Joyce Center, uh, and it probably shouldn't have been. I think a little bit of a letdown for IU in that game, coming off playing three top ten teams in a row, obviously. Uh, but that was one of the things that Knight liked to do. He liked putting his team in tough spots against highly ranked teams in neutral court environments. He liked taking his, making his team play on the road uh, against teams that were going to challenge them. And, you know, this is something you guys mentioned when we were talking beforehand about, like, what a gauntlet this non-conference schedule was for IU. And a lot of it was, like, if you go through a lot of those IU schedules from the, the 80s and 90s, and that's how they were all set up. They, they always played really tough competition. And, you know, Knight always believed that that got them prepared for the NCAA tournament. Like that, you weren't going to be able to simulate the level of pressure and the level of execution that you needed to have in those tournament games unless you exposed your team to to difficult teams in difficult environments. I think at the end of his career, he probably could have backed off that a little bit because a lot of times his teams just looked tired at the end of the season. Uh, but during this era, I think it was a key part of sharpening the iron and making sure that it was ready at the end of the year. And so even though Notre Dame wasn't that good that year, I don't think anybody knew that at the time. Uh, you know, going to the Joyce was always a big deal, and being able to win up there was an important thing, and, and you know, five-point win probably kind of highlighted that to some degree. Nothing sharpens iron like a back-to-back uh, -back Austin P in Western Michigan. <laughs> so I knew you were going to mention this. Um, so... <laughs> One of the things to keep in mind, IU basketball was the hottest ticket in Indiana during this time period, like by far. Like it was much harder to get into a, in an IU basketball game than uh, a Pacers game, for instance, uh, which seems hard to think about now, but that's just how it was back then. It's a, you know, a 17,500-seat arena, and you just didn't get tickets. And so, you know, Knight in the, I think it was the late 70s, created what was called the Indiana Classic. And the idea was to have two games that were not part of the regular season ticket package that people who lived in the area could buy tickets for and go see the team. And it was always mid-level teams. Sometimes you'd get a decent team, like Stanford was in the Indiana Classic in 1989, I think, and there were, occasionally you'd have a team like that. Um, you know, But it was normally teams like this. They play Austin P out of the Ohio Valley, and they they win that game 107-61. They play Western Michigan the next game out of the Mid-American Conference, and they win that one by, you know, 30 points or 40 points. And it gives the the locals, basically, who aren't uh, wealthy, a chance to go see them play. And it's a back-to-back, -back, so it's, you know, it's like they played the Austin P game on Friday. They play the Western Michigan game on Saturday. And again, Knight's doing that to try to get his team prepared for having to play a back-to-back. -back. And uh, they end up doing that later in the season because for the last probably 12, 13 years of his run, they also played the Hoosier Classic, which was the same thing, but up in Indianapolis. Uh, but we'll get to those games in a little bit. But yeah, that, you know, it's, it, it, it looks like schedule padding in retrospect, but probably those are, if, if Ken Palm had existed in the early 90s, that's probably a team 
in the 150s and a team in the 200s. Like, that's still pretty respectable from a scheduling perspective. Yeah, and to that point of, you know, the overall gauntlet of the schedule, those are literally the only two games I could pick out. <laughs> Every other game is like a noteworthy program where it's like, I can't even can't even make that comment about others. Yeah, it's uh, that this season was was I I would say kind of unusual even for IU. You know, I mean the previous year, um, you know they they had like they played Indiana State who was not very good back then in the in the Hoosier Classic. They played Boston. They played Central Michigan. Um, but yeah, in in ninety two ninety three this this was a team Knight knew was going to be good and they really loaded the schedule for Bear. As a result of that, um, the, they get a week off for finals after that Western Michigan game to win the Indiana Classic. And then they one of my favorite forgotten series in college basketball, um, they, they play the Cincinnati Bearcats. And this is the Cincinnati team under Bob Huggins, probably at its apex. I mean, you can make an argument for the Kenyon Martin era uh, in like 99, 2000. But, you know, in 92, that Cincinnati team. Uh, made the final four. And in 93, I think they should have made the final four. Like they were a better overall. I think they were, they might've been a better overall team that year. Or at least they looked like they were going to be at the beginning of the season. They were 27 and five that year. And again, this was a Cincinnati team with Nick Van Exel, uh, Corey Blunt. Uh, I mean, there was some, there was some NBA level players on that Cincinnati team. And, and Huggins had really kind of came out of nowhere. I think he coached at, coached at Akron before he took over Cincinnati and uh, and this was really the renaissance. Right. This was the renaissance of Cincinnati basketball that a lot of people had been waiting for. But you know they had played in January of '92 in the previous season in the Shoemaker Center, and then this game was the return game of that series. And unfortunately, I don't think the two teams have played since then. It was a really cool series, uh, but IU just crushed them in this game, 79-64 final. And again this was just kind of bolstering how we all felt about this IU team. They really felt like they were getting it going. You follow that up with a big win at home uh, as they take on St. John's, not a great St. John's team, not a terrible one. Um, and it was also the first year of the post Lou Carneseca era at St. John's. Uh, he had retired the previous year, kind of ending uh, a really successful era for New York basketball and Mahoney, Brian Mahoney, his replacement, looked like he was going to do fairly well. Um, that team had, uh, I think, one NBA player on it, Chanel Scott. Uh, but they'd get, like, one of the number. I think, I think they got Felipe Lopez as their top recruit a couple of years later, who was the top recruit in the country. He ended up not really panning out. But it wasn't like St. John's, as we know today, where it's like, oh, wow, St. John's won a game. That's special. Like, back then, it was just expected that St. John's <laughs> was going to be a good team. And and IU just came out and crushed them at home. They won 105 to 80. Um, you know, so again, it's just like, you know, that you take the Kansas game and put it aside, and it's just like, uh, it feels like this IU team has got a lot of momentum. And they, uh, they, they get another few days off for Christmas. They come back. They go to Market Square Arena in Indianapolis, um, and they play in the Hoosier Classic, which I mentioned earlier, but they're essentially playing a road game in the first game as they take on Butler. This was not the same Butler program that we know today, obviously, but Barry Collier, who's now the athletic director, was the head coach. Uh, they crushed Butler in that game. Ironically, like the next year, Butler would beat Indiana in the first game of the season at Hinkle Fieldhouse. Uh, so it's not like it's not like they were completely a lost cause, but 
Uh, certainly on that day, they weren't much of a match for Indiana. And then they play Colorado the following game, following day, another one of those back-to-backs, uh, and they win that game pretty handily as well. Um, so, you know, at that point, Indiana's 11-1, and and heading into the new year ranked number four with one more game left in the non-conference. But, of course, it's, you know, for a lot of IU fans, probably the biggest game in the non-conference on the schedule as they are taking on the Kentucky Wildcats. So just talk, you know, are people still talking about the Kansas game? Is that still is that still a cloud hanging over the team of just like, cool, we just ran through all these people, but we still lost to the best team we've played all year? I mean, they, it wasn't really being talked about too much. I think, you know, for for most IU fans, they were, you know, you would have the occasional loss. Like no one expected it to be 1976 where you're just going to win every game. Like that was just one of those once in a lifetime things. Um, you know, the famously the 1981 national title team started the season 7 and 5. So you you know, you would have a loss early. It wasn't something people dwelled on. Uh, you know, I think people were surprised that they had missed free throws to lose the game, but they weren't shocked that they lost the game. Losing games early, no big deal. And the the run of games that they'd gone on in December, it felt normal because that's normally what Indiana did. They might lose a game or two in November, and then they would go on a big run. They'd build their schedule or they'd build their record up, and then they would get ready for the Big Ten. And that was really what IU focused on every year was was going and, and playing well in the Big Ten. So that's really what most people's focus was on. I was, And I would even argue that at the time, you know, the – the Indiana Kentucky game was not a it was big it was certainly a, a big deal but it wasn't quite like it is now because it hasn't happened nearly enough back then it was happening every year I, you know i think indiana and kentucky played every year from like the mid 70s up until this point it was just kind of this accepted thing that that was a rivalry but kentucky wasn't the death star like yeah. a lot of people look at them today you know, they they you know, they'd gotten embroiled in the cheating controversy and you know, they'd been off of television for a year. But they you know, they were just they were a team everybody loved to hate, but they weren't like the evil empire like a lot of people look at them as now. And so I you know, it was a different dynamic than it used to be. Or than than I guess it became more more than what it used to be. So I guess I'll talk about that game. But that's a depressing game yeah. because very similar to that Kansas game that I was talking about, unfortunately, um, the, the, you know, the, the IU just struggled with free throws. And, you know, they, they went four for 13, as I mentioned, in the game versus Kansas. And I think they went like 11 for 22 or something like that in the Kentucky game. Like it was another really poor free throw shooting performance. This one was a little more understandable because it was in Freedom Hall as opposed to being in in the the Hoosier Dome or the RCA Dome, I guess it was called at the time, um, you know. But it, it 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 did sting a little bit. Technically, not an upset because Kentucky was ranked ahead of Indiana, and Kentucky was a really highly regarded team. Kentucky made it to the Final Four that year. They should have made it to the Final Four the previous year if the referees had done what civilized people normally would do and thrown Christian Leitner out of the game, um, you know. But uh, but, you know, but in reality, like it was a tightly contested game between two teams that were very close to each other in overall talent. You know, I think Rick Pitino was probably at the apex of his coaching abilities during that time period at the college level. Um, so, again, it was a, it was a disappointing loss, but it 
it was a loss that you looked at it and you said, we lost by three on a neutral court to a team that's ranked ahead of us. We're going to get better. We're going to be sharpened by the Big Ten. You know, it's again, it's disappointing, but it's not the end of the world by any stretch of the imagination. Everything's going to be fine. They got to start hitting free throws in these big games, though, if they want to do something down the road. And you got tested right away. Play yeah. Kentucky on January 3rd, and then you, you got to host Iowa, who's eighth in the nation on January 6th. And, you know, people, Iowa might be the team that has the most forgotten great teams in Big Ten play. You know, Iowa could win the Big Ten, and I think everybody would forget it, like, within probably two weeks. Uh, and you'd be talking about them five years later. It's like, was, was Iowa good that year? I don't even remember. Uh, this was a really good Iowa team. They had A.C. Earl, who most people have forgotten about. He played in the NBA for a bit, but he was a 17-9 and nine guy in college, which is pretty hard to do. Um, you know, they had Wade Looking Bill, who had played fairly well. But the guy that, that, that scared the hell out of me every time that I, Iowa played Indiana was Chris Street. Chris Street was a junior. He was a double-digit scorer. He almost was a double-double guy. Uh, native of, of, I think, Indianola, Iowa. And um, his favorite team to play against was Indiana. Like, that was the team he got the most fired up for. And um, this will become a key point as we come back to this season a little bit later on. Uh, but this was a, a really t- this was ex- this was what you got in the Big Ten in the late '80s, early '90s. You just you rarely got a day off. Um, and that Iowa team gave Indiana all they could handle that day, and IU still won by eight. They were still able to figure out a way to win the game. Um, you know, it was it was Big Ten tight, which meant it was kind of like a four or five six point game for a lot of the game. Indiana just had enough cushion at the end; they were able to win. Um, they get a second game in Assembly Hall right after that. They beat Penn State. I, I lied a minute ago when I said you didn't get an easy game in the Big Ten during this era. This Penn State had just joined the Big Ten the previous year. They were, yeah. You know, I remember Bob Knight had this famous quote. You know, something about, you know, I, I don't want to go camping that badly uh, to have Penn State join the league. Because that's how people viewed Penn State. I mean, I don't know if you guys have been to State College, but it's it's it, it's it's not – it's great. I love it. It's a, it's a dynamite spot, but compared to the rest of the conference, it's kind of out in the middle of, of nowhere. At the time the, – the Not fourth, kind of. Right. Well, I mean, and now, now, it's, now it's like squarely in the middle of the conference geographically, thanks to Rutgers, yeah. Maryland. But yeah. at the time, I mean, the furthest east team in the conference was Ohio State. And it's like, yeah, let's add another six hours or seven hours to the drive and get to Happy Valley. Um, and Penn State was not good. They'd been in the Atlantic 10. Uh, they had had a great run in the NCAA tournament a couple of years earlier. I think they might have. I think they were. They had a chance to go to the Sweet 16 and lost to Eastern Michigan. I think was the deal uh, in 1991, um, but they just weren't a good team. They had one good player basically in um, um, uh, the name's escaping me right now, but it'll come back to me in a second. Um, basically, you you summed up every Penn State team for like the last 30 years. So <laughs> John Amici was the play, and John Amici was was a really good player. Uh, you know, six ten center. I think he was English actually. Um, but they just were no match for Indiana on that day. They ended up losing to Indiana 105 to 57, like like nearly a 50 point win, um, which would come back to be an interesting thing. But nobody was thinking about that at the moment because of the game that was coming up next, uh, which was the game that everybody had been waiting for since the start of the season. 
After uh, taking a shot at my uh, current city of residence, State College, Pennsylvania, and the Atlantic <laughs> Ten, all in one sentence, you're it was about too perfect. You're about you're about a Dayton Flyer comment away from me being, uh, you know, maybe throwing my chair across the room like Bobby Knight. Wow. Well, well Jeremy, well, Jeremy, they only played real college basketball teams this season, so Dayton was on the schedule. So, so I'll, my uh, my the, that whole Penn State preamble was a setup for the game that's coming in about a month. Uh, so that I, it's it, there were reasons that I said all of those things. I don't feel any of that myself. Actually, one of when I was a college broadcaster in the late '90s, one of my favorite trips we went out to Happy Valley in 1999 to broadcast the Indiana. Penn State football game. LeVar Arrington was on that team. It was right after that pit game where he nearly killed a punter um, for no good reason whatsoever. And um, yeah, we had a great time. It was awesome. Anyway, um, the 12th of January of 1993, um, nine o'clock game, Mike Patrick and Dick Vitale on the call for ESPN, Indiana at Michigan. Michigan is ranked second in the country. I think Indiana was fifth or sixth. And this was the game everybody had been waiting for because the previous year, Indiana had beaten Michigan at home pretty handily, and then they lost at Michigan. Uh, and that was when the Fab Five was was fully playing together. And so you've got the Fab Five fully in blossom at this point. You know, at, at that point in their season, uh, I think they had only lost one game, and that was the game that they played at Cameron. Uh, and so they were on an 11-game winning streak. Uh, they had won their first two games in the conference, same as Indiana had. And so this was, this game, to some degree, was, I'm not going to say it was for all the marbles, but, like, the, the tone was going to be set very early on about who was going to be the dominant team in the Big Ten during this season, about who what happened in this game. And to some degree, Indiana's playing with house money to, to a little bit because it, it's it's at Chrysler, not at assembly hall even if you lose this game you'll have a chance to even the series up but you know bob knight obviously wanted to beat michigan i don't think he had a huge amount of respect for steve fisher as a head basketball coach at that point i think fisher ended up proving himself to be a very good basketball coach as time went on but as an in-game coach i'm sure knight considered himself superior and knight took a very unusual approach in this game this is one of those games where if you can i have a youtube channel where i have a huge amount of IU basketball games that were recorded on VHS and then I've digitized and I've uploaded them. Uh, a lot of games from this era, a lot of games from 91, 92, 93, 94. This game is on there. Go watch this game. It is a fascinating study in how malleable Bob Knight could be as a head coach because you know normally Knight is very focused on his teams crashing the glass, his teams playing a very deliberate style of offense, um, and he threw all that out the window in this game. And he basically, he told his team to get back in defense and try to cut off Michigan's transition game. You know, he's got his offense running in a different style than it normally does and trying to emphasize different aspects of the offense, and it worked. I mean, you know, Indiana built a relatively decent lead. Michigan comes roaring back. Indiana has a chance up one with, um, I think it was Calvert Chaney, going to the free throw line. It might have been Todd Leary. I can't remember. I think it was Leary because – or it might have been Greg Graham. Anyway, Calvert Chaney – That sounds is, right. Is, ...is at the line – or is, is on the free throw lane, and Knight calls to him to back off. Phil Bova, who's the official, throws the basketball uh, to Graham, and Chaney backs off the lane, and they blow the whistle. And 
they rule that because Cheney's backed off the lane after they've tossed the ball to the shooter, that that's a lane violation. And so Indiana, with a chance to shoot two free throws to go up by three, instead shoots zero free throws because it's a one and one. And Michigan gets the ball down one with like, I don't know, like 10 seconds left or something like that. And there's this big to-do where Knight's yelling at the officials to no avail. And, you know, at that point, I know me watching the game and everybody else, you know, we're like, okay, well, Michigan's going to come down, hit a shot, win the game. So Michigan comes down the floor. They get a shot up. It it misses. Juwan Howard gets the rebound, goes up, and Allen Henderson blocks the, the ball and Indiana wins the game. And it was this huge, like, I remember high-fiving with my dad in the living room when this happens. Like, it was a big, big deal. And um, I remember Jim Valvano, like, just waxing philosophical on the post-game uh, for ESPN because he was in the studio. This was, like, right before he died. Um, but I remember him talking, like, through the strategy of all that and how impressive the whole thing was. I remember Knight and and, and I think Cheney getting interviewed at the end of the game. Uh, it was just that was that was one of the more fun games that they played that year, and was really huge because it it announced to everybody that yes, this IU team is actually legit. They were able to go in and beat the Fab Five at Chrysler, um, and that really kind of set the tone for the rest of the games that were to come during that stretch of the season. And at the time, undefeated in the Big Ten, which you mentioned earlier, winning the Big Ten was probably the only goal people really cared about right now, at least in the yeah. current moment. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, that was the thing with Knight. It was like it was always about Big Ten first, win the Big Ten. Uh, if you can win the Big Ten, the rest will take care of itself because you can't count on the tournament draw. Things will happen that you don't know. Um, but to be the best team in the Big Ten was really important. And you know, they'd had seasons where they were expected to win the Big Ten, and they did. 87 was a good example of that. They'd had seasons where they expected to win the Big Ten, and they didn't. They had seasons where they weren't expected to win the Big Ten, and they did. 89 was a great example of that. Um, but, um, you know, this year, everybody knew it was going to be tough because you had all these top 25 teams in the conference. And so for Indiana to be able to beat the second-ranked team in the country like that really set them up well as they move forward. And it was important because they had a three-game road trip here after starting with two games at home in the conference. They had to go at two Michigan. They had to go to a, a still decent Illinois team, uh, you know, an Illinois team that was 19-13 um, and 13 on the season, you know, had Deion Thomas and, and had a bunch of other really good players. Uh, and then they had to go to Purdue, their arch rival. Uh, that's a hell of a way to, to get a road trip put together in the conference, but that was essentially what they had to do. And they would end up winning all of those games. They they won at Illinois. Um, that was you know that Illinois team gave a lot of teams fits. Lou Henson actually won Big Ten Coach of the Year this year. Despite um, I mean we can get into how ludicrous that decision was. Illinois wasn't expected to do a whole lot. Uh, and yes, they finished with a winning record in conference. But um, we'll talk about how ludicrous that was uh, when we get to the end of the Big Ten accounting of all of this. And then Purdue was very good. Like this was. Glenn Robinson's first actual year playing with Purdue, he had been a Prop 48 casualty. Remember that? Uh, you know, academic ineligibility your freshman year for not making test scores or whatever. Um, but he was he was a really he he was he was he was 24 and nine that year uh, as as a first year player in the Big Ten, which gives you an example of, of how good of a player he was. They also had Conzo Martin, uh, who was who was tremendous. Matt Painter, current. Purdue head coach was on that team. He was their third leading scorer. 
Uh, and Purdue always played IU tough. You know, I think, I don't remember the exact records, but I think Gene Cady was the only coach that finished his career with a winning record or a 500 record against Bob Knight. And I can't remember if it was winning or 500, but even in years when Purdue was not that great, they would find a way to put a scare in Indiana or beat Indiana. And, you know, the previous year they had done that in the last game of the season. So, again, to go into Mackey Arena and beat Purdue when Purdue was ranked in the top 15 as they were at the time, that was a big deal. Um, so any lingering, you guys have asked me about like lingering concerns or thoughts about, about the team after the Kansas loss or after the Kentucky loss, you know, all those are in their rearview mirror after, you know, starting five and zero in the conference and, and sweeping your three game road trip, essentially. This seems to be the, the year of future head coaches and athletic directors. <laughs> it is. Everyone you're naming is like, becomes a head coach and you know, at least present day or at least, you know, near present. Day. I don't I don't think we're totally done with that, although I'll have to go back and look at some of the rosters <laughs> as we're going through this. But, yeah, it's funny to think about that. Like there's a lot of I, I guess it kind of makes sense because we're we're 30 years past this. That's about the ratio for a lot of these guys to get you know, firmly ensconced in their professions. But sure. um, Indiana plays Ohio State next. Uh, they get a five day break, which they needed, and they play another top 25 team at home. Uh, and this is not the same Ohio State team, obviously, that had uh, won the Big Ten title two years in a row. Um, relatively young team, and they would struggle down the stretch in, in this season. But, you know, they had some good players. Lawrence Funderburk was an excellent player, had been an IU player. There was a lot of bad blood. You ever want to read about um, some bad college blood? Like, look up the Bob Knight-Lawrence Funderburk thing, where, like, Knight essentially tried to block him from playing at any college he didn't want him to play at and he ends up transferring to a small school and then transferring again and finally getting to Ohio State Uh, but they had some other good players Jamie Skelton was one of those Big Ten players that you felt like was around forever and just was always a pain in your ass Um, you know like the Jess Settles mold that you guys are probably too young to remember Jess Settles but like the players like that that were just around forever um, Derek Anderson was a freshman on that team. He played very well, but IU crushed them in that game, uh, 95 to 69. Three days later, they get to host Minnesota. Uh, that was another, that was a pretty decent Minnesota team. Uh, they were 22 and 10 on the year. They had Vashawn Leonard, who was an NBA player. That game is fascinating. That's another game I recommend everybody going back and watching on YouTube. Um, it was a relatively tight game. Uh, Clem Haskins was a, was a good coach. Um, not a great manager of academics, but but certainly a good coach. Um, and, you know, they, they always played Indiana tough. That was the game that actually led us to having the uh, five-second closely guarded rule taken out of college basketball uh, because Minnesota had a possession at the very end of the game where they got a very questionable five-second closely guarded call called against them where they ended up turning the ball over. And uh, that ended up being one of a couple of games during this IU season that would lead directly to rule changes that would happen later on. The other one comes up in the NCAA tournament. But uh, but uh, good game, low-scoring game, but a really good defensive battle between those two teams. I recommend se- seeking that game out. So we move on to the next game, uh, which was, you know, the, the Big Ten just never stopped at that point. Northwestern was not very good, though. Like, yeah, North that Northwestern's like the unchanging thing in the Big Ten. Like they're always yeah. just bad. Um, with that that one magical, bizarre Chris Collins season as an exception. 
but they they were they were not good this year either, and they would uh, end up losing to Indiana at home uh, every time during this era. Every time Indiana played at Welsh Ryan Arena in Evanston, it was essentially Indiana's tenth home game in the conference. <laughs> there's, there's so many IU fans that yep. live in the Chicagoland area that you know you j- that was it was much easier to get to Evanston than it was to get to Bloomington. It's, it's a forty minute yep. drive as opposed to a four hour drive, and so uh, that was generally an Indiana home game, and and they they satisfied the home crowd with that win uh, of twenty two against Northwestern that day. Well, unfortunately, Northwestern plays more road games than they do home games when anyone comes to town uh, here. So no surprise there. It is what it is. I mean, look, yeah. I, I think they're they're a tougher out than they used to be, but they, they, they're they still not a tough out by and large. It is interesting, though, uh, because the, the one notable thing about that um, that Northwestern team, I think, was that they, they did show a little bit of a pulse in the conference at random intervals. Like they, I think their, their biggest accomplishment that year, which everybody's forgotten about, but I will always remind Purdue fans is that they beat Purdue in Mackey arena in February that year. Uh, And that came out of the blue. No one expected it. Then the next year they beat Michigan at home to derail Michigan uh, attempting to win the big 10 title. So, you know, they, they would very once yep. in a blue moon, they would throw a game up that would just confound everybody. But fortunately for Indiana, it never seemed to happen against them during that period. And I kind of, it, it's kind of amazing. And again, all these schools have gone through their ups and downs and Indiana is not currently what they were, but so many of these teams, it's they're in the exact same spot as they were in 92, 93 yeah. uh, with Michigan, Ohio state, Iowa, you know, even maybe Illinois, Illinois better now than they were this season. But then it's kind of just it's ironic of how you describe everything is really the current status of most of these Big Ten programs. Yeah. I mean, the one exception is Wisconsin, where, you know, Indiana beat Wisconsin something like. I think it was like um, 34 or 36 straight times. It might have been more than that. Yeah. And then Wisconsin went through the the looking glass in the late nineties and uh, they have been, it's, it's it, to me like both in football and in basketball, Wisconsin's transformation from the, the co-doormat with Northwestern to a team to be reckoned with is still hard to get my head wrapped around. Uh, you know, so, so uh, during this, this was right when Wisconsin was starting to get a little bit better, but it would really take until um the late nineties for that to really take hold. And this was a pretty good Wisconsin team that year, which we'll talk about at the end of this, uh, at the end of this season rundown. Um, but you know, it was, it always felt like a blip on the radar with Wisconsin as opposed to something more tangible. And I, the, the other, not turning point, but the other key moment of this point in the year too, is they finally get to number one. Yeah. And I mean, some of that was due to teams around them losing. I mean, during yeah. this time period, you know, I mean, Michigan, and this is where, I wanted to bring in this storyline because I think it's a really important one. So I mentioned Chris Street earlier who played for Iowa. So I think it was like the 28th or 29th of January. Chris Street dies in a car accident. And uh, it's, a, it's a huge tragedy. Like, you know, as, as much as Big Ten schools generally act like they don't like each other, there's a lot of kinship and affinity there. And that was a real gut punch because everybody knew who Chris Street was. Everybody respected him as a player. I actually I worked in Iowa for a while as a radio broadcaster after I graduated, and I, I 
Uh, I remember the high school team that I broadcasted for played a game in Chris Street's hometown. And there's this whole, like, you know, display of Chris Street memorabilia and stuff, like, in the lobby. It's, it's actually really moving if you were alive and around at that time. So, anyway, so Chris Street dies in, in, in a car accident. They play Michigan two days later, and they beat Michigan. Uh, they beat them 88 to 80. This was in Carver Hawkeye Arena. And it was a very emotional scene. I remember watching that game on, I think it was ESPN. But the dedication game for Chris Street was not that game. The dedication game was the game against Indiana because Chris Street, as I mentioned earlier, his favorite team to play against was Indiana. And, you know, I can distinctly remember, you know, coming off of that Northwestern game, there's about a a seven-day break for IU. It's a three-game road trip, but it's broken up a bit. But they got to go play this Iowa team who's in the top ten, who's on this incredible emotional roller coaster uh, with the death of their, essentially their captain and their, their talisman. Um, and I use got to go in and play them. And it's like, it felt like the entire universe was lined up for Indiana to lose this game. And, you know, for a while, I, you know, I remember feeling in that game, like Indiana was going to lose that game. Like it was, it was a really emotional game. It was a really tough game. Um, but Indiana ends up prevailing in that game. And I remember actually feeling bad that Indiana had won that game because it, you know, Street's family was in the crowd. I mean, they they kept showing them on the camera. And you're just, you know, to some degree, you're like, well, I want to win this game. But I I also would kind of like the Street family to, like, feel some sense of closure and, and feel better about themselves. So that was, a, that was a really tough one. I remember even as a 13-year-old, I remember feeling bad about that one and, and just having a bunch of mixed emotions about that game. But, uh, but Indiana ends up winning it, and... You know, that's what you're supposed to do when you go out and play games is win. And that ended up being the win that put Indiana over the hump uh, for 20 wins. You know, which if you can win 20 games by the first week of February, you're probably doing fairly well, uh, you know, in the season. And and look, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, Indiana was just such a good team at that point that even though they're playing this pretty good team, this top 15 team that was on an emotional high, Indiana just knew what they were doing at that point in the season, and and they were really, really conditioned to that kind of pressure. They 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 were starting to get to the point. It sounds like that they there's no one they didn't think they shouldn't beat. There, it's not just a could now; it's a should. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, it's very rare in IU history that you get teams like that. I mean, '76 was like that. '81 by the end was like that. '87 never quite got to that point. Like '87. You'd have games where they blew teams out, and then there would, there would be games where they didn't, and they were it was very close, and they lost a couple of games at the end of the season. This team felt different. Like this team felt like anything you throw at them, they're going to be able to handle. Um, were they ready to go camping though? Well, that's the thing because that's the next game, <laughs> and and you know it's funny because that pe- the the next game, the camping game, is um, it, you have to remember that they were coming off of that emotional Iowa game. And, and, you know, that winning that game, getting to 20 wins, being the number one team in the country and playing a team that they had beaten earlier in the season by 48 points, all of that combined for a letdown mentally, which they'd shown the previous year. And Penn State in that game played them really tough. Now, this is a game I absolutely recommend everybody go back and watch, if only to see what Rec Hall at Penn State looked like. Um, like, everybody's used to the Bryce Jordan Center, which, frankly, looks like every other college basketball venue on the planet. Rec Hall 
look like a high school gym in the best possible way. I say that as an Indiana person yeah. where we worship our high school gyms. This was a high school gym on steroids because it was standing room only. It was just a wall of people and everybody was fired up about playing Indiana. And a lot of it was Bob Knight's comments from a couple of years earlier about the camping stuff. You know, and it's funny because like Joe Paterno and Bob Knight were were good friends. I remember listening to Joe Paterno on the pregame radio show because uh, they they had him on and talked about it all. And and you know they talked about how Knight had tried to apply for the Penn State job in the late '60s and had gotten turned down because he was too young as a coach. He was like 26. Uh, they probably weren't going to hire him out of Army after like you know being a coach for two years. But um, but that was just a really rough game because Indiana was cold. Penn State was hot. Um, Penn State was hitting shots. And frankly, with two minutes left, I thought Indiana was going to lose the game. They 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 were down. They had committed a foul on a layup, which allowed Penn State to go up by three. And it just kind of felt like, all right, they've walked the tightrope a couple of times. This isn't going to work. They're going to lose the game. And then a couple of things happened at the end of the sequence of that first half, um, which – I mean, one was just a horrific call by uh, Sam Licklider, who was the official, where um, Chris Reynolds was the defender. Greg Bartram was the Penn State player. Bartram, on an inbounds pass, breaks out and has a clear path to the basket. Reynolds grabs his jersey, literally grabs it. You can see it on the camera shot. Um, Bartram, like, swings his arm out behind him, clears Reynolds out, grabs the ball, and slams it home. And it looks like it's going to be either an intentional foul on Reynolds or, a, you know, a foul on the shot that goes in. Instead, they call an offensive foul on Bartram. So the basket gets wiped out. IU <laughs> gets the ball. Bruce Parkhill, who was the head coach for Penn State at the time, just goes apeshit. Like, 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 you know, he spent the rest of the game literally pointing at, at, uh, at Sam Licklider, like, out of the huddle and screaming at him. I- I'm shocked that he didn't get a technical and, and get thrown out of the game. Um, but it allowed IU to come back. They hit a shot, and then uh, the last possession of the game in regulation, uh, Greg Graham puts up a three in the corner. He misses, but he gets fouled on the three. He misses the first free throw, hits the last two, sends it into overtime. It goes to double overtime. IU's losing players left and right. They end up putting the freshman Brian Evans in. He hits a huge shot. Um, uh, it's like a little 15-foot dribble in. And uh, Indiana ends up winning the game, eighty-eight, eighty-four, and um, that was that was the first brush with death that year, as far as Indiana was concerned. Really, like where they they really felt like they grabbed one that they absolutely shouldn't have won. And much like the Iowa game the previous, I felt bad for Penn State. I was like, oh my god, like they were so fired up for that game. Uh, they played so well. Indiana did not play well. Penn State deserved something out of the game, but they they just couldn't pull it off. That uh that like grab potential intentional foul charge is like those uh those memes or those like rival videos when like somebody gets like run over by a you know you know 18 wheeler or something that's like blocker charge blocker charge that's right no it was a terrible call and look i'll be the first to admit i you got a lot of those calls because the officials were were intimidated by bob knight uh, even on the road, they were intimidated by Bob Knight. And and there were a lot of calls that Indiana got that they probably shouldn't have during that era. But, you know, you get that. I mean, Duke has gotten those calls for 30 years for the same reason. And trust me, Indiana has not. Like, I always laugh when people 
refer to assembly call assembly hall as the the hall of calls i'm like when the fuck when 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 did that happen like that maybe 12 years ago that's about the last time i can remember it or 10 years ago um but yeah it was it was unfortunate and and i mean you know it was penn state was very early in their time in the conference um you know and, and they 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 were laying a foundation at that point it's tough to transition from the a10 up to up to the big 10 especially at that time of of, ba- of basketball but i thought they acquitted themselves very well in that game and i you know, i wish that they'd had a little bit more to show for it so you know coming off of that game indiana gets a little bit of a break and then they got to play the fab 5 again uh this time indiana's number 1 michigan's number 4 and this time the games at assembly hall one of the interesting things when the fab 5 was in their their full blossom the the five freshmen who were now sophomores they only actually had two seasons like that because chris weber left after this year uh to go to the nba iu was three and one against that michigan team uh this is one of the things that iu fans love to point out it's one of those things that gets kind of lost to history to some degree it doesn't matter in the big scheme of things because michigan made two national title games in two years and indiana made one final four in those same two years but when you talk about big 10 play Indiana got the better of Michigan. And, you know, I can remember hearing Jalen Rose talk about how when Indiana would play Michigan, they, you know, Michigan would go set up in their offense and Indiana would know exactly what they were running before they started the play. Um, that was how well Bob Knight knew how to scout teams. And, and, you know, the Fab Five guys were just kind of like, what the hell? They were still so competitive against IU because they were so good. Like they were so talented at what they did. And this is, this may be the most fun overall game like the first michigan game was a nail biter it was a back and forth sort of thing this one was just a it, this game reminds me a lot of um if you're an iu fan or if you're just a casual uh like college basketball fan one of the best college basketball games i've ever watched was the indiana unlv final four game from 1987 it's it's a great game to go back and watch it's like unfettered offense it's kind of like the it, it's like it's like you know this era's nba but um with a 45 second shot clock and you have two teams that score in the nineties. That's essentially what this game was where Indiana was marginally better for most of the game. Michigan would have these swells where they would come back and they take a small lead. And then Indiana would jump back into the lead and Indiana led this game late um, by like five or six or seven points. And it took Indiana hitting some free throws to actually secure the final margin of victory because, you know, they ended up leading by four. I, I think it was Weber hit a three at the buzzer that made it a one-point game. So it wasn't like – it wasn't a one-point game in the traditional sense, but it was a game that Indiana uh, was was certainly able to um, – you know, they, they, they were just like marginally better the whole time. And it was just like, okay, what we learned in the game at Ann Arbor – has carried over to this one. Indiana, with their current lineup, is clearly the best team in the Big Ten. This settles the title. Everything's going to be cool for Indiana the rest of the way. Oh, if we had only known um, what was going to happen from that point forward. But that was essentially what we what we knew at this stage. So one of the things I wanted to mention during this time period, I actually, I think we skipped a little bit beyond it, but... Um, you know, Matt, you had mentioned earlier this whole idea of like the Fab Five being the better team or the more herald team in the conference, and so therefore taking some pressure off of Indiana. 
So by January, by you know, you beat the Fab Five, and I think that's worn off a bit, and everybody's really focusing on Indiana as maybe being the top team in the country. So one of my favorite stories from this period, Knight decides that he's going to create something that is going to set the at least the local media world on fire. And so during, I think either a press conference or a um, or or maybe it was during his coach's show, I forget. Someone had asked him about his team. And he said something along the lines of, well, you know, the team this year is fine, but um, the, you know, we've got this guy coming in next year who's going to be uh, maybe the best player that college basketball has ever seen. His name is Ivan Renko. And he's this Yugoslavian player who can do everything. He can dribble. Uh, he can, he can shoot from distance. He's like six ten, um, And he did this, you know, obviously to take some pressure off of his own team, but also, Knight had really gotten annoyed with like the Clark Francis's of the world, like the, the the early era of the recruiting experts who were ranking players without a whole lot of context, or at least in Knight's eyes, without a whole lot of context. So he invents this Yugoslavian player that he's announced that he's recruited and he's going to bring in. And nobody's ever heard of this guy. But several recruiting services start ranking Ivan Renko uh, as as a top recruit for coming for the next season. Um and then I, you know, living in Indiana, I'm watching local news and, you know, there were people that were calling in to the local news and saying that they'd met Ivan Renko. He had visited Indiana. There was a guy that that said that he'd seen Ivan Renko's name on a flight manifest uh, that was leaving for New York City. Like this thing took on a life of its own. It was it was a classic misdirection play by Bob Knight, who he would do this every once in a while during his tenure when he was feeling his oats where he would just create something uh, and he would, he would, you know, he would take it to its natural extent because he knew the media would cover anything that he said. And it would just completely deflect. It would take all the attention and put it on him or what he said and would take it all off of his team. So um, of course, Ivan Renko was not real, but if you mention Ivan Renko to any IU fan over the age of like 35, they'll know exactly what you're talking about and they'll probably have a good chuckle out of it. That's, that's amazing. The the start of the uh, airplane watch uh, of of people. It was it was it was crazy. And then, you know, this is back in an era where probably I would say seventy five percent of the state of Indiana had never even been to the airport, hadn't flown anywhere in their lives. You know, so the airport felt like this magical place. You know, it was like it was anything could happen there. And certainly, you know, Yugoslavian players could be flying in and out of Indiana, and nobody would really know. And it's a roster, current roster that's made up of as far east as Peoria, or far west as Peoria, Illinois, and as far east as Cleveland, Ohio. So, you know, I really stepped I mean, out of his box. Hey, you know, in, in 87, they, they, in, in 87, they won the national title with two players from California, and it was like we had recruited guys from yeah. this. You know, I mean, it really, it felt like, I mean, those were, uh, those were, I think, I think Joe Hillman was Knight's first recruit west of the Mississippi. I mean, that kind of gives you a sense of what yeah. college basketball was like during this time period. So, yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. That's awesome. Anyway, so that was going on. And then, you know, you, so you beat Michigan, and then um, Indiana beats Illinois at home handily. There wasn't a whole lot going on in that game. I think the most important thing that came out of that game was Chris Reynolds went up for a dunk late in the game, which he never did because he was a six-one point guard, and he just completely – blew it like the ball clattered off the rim and flew out of bounds like you know over the bench uh which was a big no-no in the night era and reynolds would have a lot of fun with it on senior night when he would 
go dunk the ball and have his like teammates lift him up to do it. And it was, it was a fun scene. Um, but what happens during this period, I think it was right that weekend actually, or going into that weekend was what eventually derailed Indiana's season, which was that Alan Henderson, who was their sophomore power forward, uh, was a guy that would play in the NBA, uh, for several seasons, um, ends up, you know, I don't, I don't know if he severely sprained his knee or tore a ligament or whatever, but he was he he injured his knee um, during that week and was essentially gone for the next month and a half and was never anywhere close to being back where he was um, before that. And you know, to, just to kind of put it in you know some kind of context, Alan Henderson that year averaged eleven points and eight rebounds and. He was uh, absolutely like the the key rebounder on the team. He was probably the best defensive player on the team, certainly the best defensive post player on the team. And this was an Indiana team that didn't have post players. Like the, you know, I, I mentioned the lack of depth earlier on in this conversation. And you know, the roster was Calvert Cheney, who was a swing man. He was six seven, essentially small forward. Greg Graham was a six four shooting guard. Matt Nover was a center, but he's six eight. Uh, this was not a, a particularly tall center. Damon Bailey, 6'3". He played in the post sometimes, but he was a guard. Um, Henderson at 6'9". Brian Evans was 6'8", but he was much more of a small forward 6'8", than a power forward 6'8", but he was suddenly pressed into service. And literally the rest of the roster was guards. Todd Leary was a 6'3 guard. Chris Reynolds, 6'1". Pat Graham, who starts to come back. This is like where we start to see Pat Graham slowly reintegrate, but he's a 6'5 guy. And then the other two members of the roster that got any minutes that year were Pat Knight, who barely played, and Malcolm Sims. So suddenly, an already relatively thin roster, which you know had you know nine guys on it essentially, now has eight guys, and they have one player who's a functional post player who's over six feet seven. And um, to some degree, it's a remarkable achievement for IU that they finished the season as strongly as they do from this point forward. Cause I think this would have wrecked pretty much any other team uh, in a similar situation. And this is where I think for most IU fans, if they're being honest with themselves, when, when Henderson went down and we realized he wasn't coming back anytime soon, this was where you hope that they were going to figure out a way to make it happen. But in the back of your head, you realize that this, this probably wasn't going to end as well as everybody thought it would you know, the week before. So, but it didn't show immediately. They host Purdue in the next game, you know, and then again, you got Glenn Robinson, who's a post player, who's basically unstoppable. IU stops them all. They win 93-78 in that game. And uh, they push the record to 24-2. and And that ends up being the last win in their longest winning streak of the season, which is 13. They suffer their, um, and this is it's still crazy to think about, they suffer their one Big Ten loss of the whole season the following game. They travel to Ohio State. It's a, it's a, it's a two-game turnaround. They play Purdue at home on a Sunday. They got to go to Ohio State uh, in St. John Arena on a Tuesday night. And they almost win the game in regulation. Uh, it ends up getting pushed to overtime. They end up losing by four. And that ends up being Ohio State's kind of primary shining moment of the season. It's, it's Indiana's one loss. Um, but at the end of the day, you can't be too harsh about that one like the idea that this team was going to go undefeated they might have i mean you know you got to look at it and say well if they had henderson in that game and if they if they gotten through that game 
the schedule was set up where they could have gone undefeated the rest of the way in the Big Ten, but um, it wasn't to be. Are you just two games in, two games in like four or five days since the injury? As a fan, are you seeing teams starting to play differently yet against them? Not really, because, you know, this was, you know, one of my favorite teams of all time to watch was Illinois' 89 team, which was basically positionless basketball. You know, you had a bunch of guys between 6'4 and 6'8 who were essentially interchangeable in all the positions. And it was, you know, Nick Anderson and Kenny Battle and Kendall Gill and Marcus Liberty. And um, they just were able to switch around so well. And even though they would play teams with centers, they would play teams that had you know, slightly smaller guards, they were so good that it was impossible to defend them. And that's essentially what Indiana became during this period. You got a lot more three-guard lineups, you know, a lot more where you're playing Reynolds and Bailey and Graham as the three guards, and you're playing Cheney as the swing man, and you're playing Nova as the center. Um, you know, so you're you're more perimeter-oriented. But, I mean, you're still facing, you know, Greg Graham and Calvert Cheney and Damon Bailey and Matt Nover, and it's like most like certainly the teams that they had in the run out because they played all the ranked teams. Like when they beat that Purdue team, they didn't play another ranked team until the Sweet Sixteen. Um, Minnesota, while they were fine that year, they weren't good enough to be able to match Indiana, Northwestern, Wisconsin, Michigan State. Those teams just weren't up to the caliber. And so, uh, you know, I think if they'd had to close the season playing the Fab Five or close the season and play Iowa, maybe a different story. But in that particular scenario. You know, there's never a good time for that kind of an injury, but that injury happened at, at the right time where they weren't going to incur any more losses in the conference as a result of it. So no conference tournament, so no right. tune-up. Well, and there was one other important thing that happened in the run out of the season because they had they had Minnesota on the road, and that's all. You know, Williams Arena at then as now is a very difficult place to win games, but they won that pretty easily. Um, Northwestern, they beat easily. And then Michigan State, that game is important because, A, it's senior night for this class, and that was really important. And it was also the game that Calvert Cheney set the record for the all-time scoring lead in the Big Ten, which he holds to this day and probably will forever because we just – a player that's good enough to score that many points – is not going to stick around for four years in this era. It's just not going to happen. So um, so they win those games. They win at Wisconsin in the final game of the year, the only time they played Wisconsin. That was not a bad Wisconsin team. I mean, that was a Wisconsin team that had uh, Michael Finley, uh, you know, on the team. And, you know, they had they, they, they were surprisingly resilient. Uh, Stu Jackson, uh, which I guess that's another coach we should mention, who became, wait, he's like a vice president of the NBA at this point, I think, or something like that. But, uh but he coached them, uh, but you know, but Indiana wins that. But yeah, like you mentioned, that game was on Selection Sunday. Like I think IU played at like one o'clock in the afternoon or two o'clock in the afternoon, and that might have been the lead-in game for the Selection Show. They would do like two games. Um, one of them was a, a conference championship, and then the other one was the Big Ten game, and then they'd have the Selection Show. And so yeah, Indiana one seed and. You know, I mean, that was an interesting one-seed field that year because, obviously, you know, Indiana is, uh, you know, they're they're still, I don't think they were, they might have been number one by the time the season ended. Um, yeah, actually, they were, um, they were in the final AP poll. They were the number one overall team. So, you know, whatever the NCAA selection committee said, 
um, that they were they were the overall AP team. And I don't know if they deserved that at that point. I think that might have been reputational uh, more than anything else. But it was a really strong one seed field because you had Indiana, you had North Carolina, who was uh, you know that was that was the team that won the national title that year. Obviously, you had Michigan, uh, and then you had Kentucky. Uh, and so, really, it was it was a really strong field all the way around. But Indiana had certainly done enough during the year to earn that one seed, uh, and certainly they earned the the ability to play an hour up the road in Indianapolis in the first couple of rounds of the NCAA tournament. So they get the, they get Wright State in that first game. Wright State not a challenge. Like they they blew Wright State out uh, pretty quickly, ninety seven fifty four. Um, but they had a really tough game in that second game of the NCAA tournament. They play Xavier. And, and again, you know, it's easy to forget with a lot of these teams um, why they were good. Um, but that Xavier team had four NBA players on their roster that year. They had Brian Grant, who played for many years, Aaron Williams, Michael Hawkins, Larry Sykes, uh, Jamie Gladden, who I don't think played in the NBA, but, you know, scored 14 points a game. Uh, and Xavier was kind of a tricky team. Like they had, they had sprung some upsets in the NCAA tournament in the past. They'd beaten Georgetown uh, five, like six or seven years earlier on, and they were a really tough eight seed. And I mentioned earlier when we were talking about that Minnesota game, how that the end of that game led to the removal of the five second closely guarded call. The Xavier game ended up leading to the rule change that when a basket is made in the last minute, the clock stops. Because what ends up happening at the end of that game is a back-and-forth game. Bob Knight almost gets a technical foul. Like, his team is struggling. Like, Xavier is really well coached. Pete Gillen, uh, for all of his scheduling faults, was a really good in-game coach. Uh, He has his team right there. Xavier makes a shot, I think gets the lead down to three. Indiana very slowly goes over to get the basketball. I think Xavier made the shot with, like, 19 seconds left. You know, it takes Indiana four or five seconds to go pick the ball up. They slowly go out of bounds, and then they take the full four and a half seconds before they throw the ball in. So they run 10 seconds off the clock, get fouled, make free throws, and essentially Xavier runs out of time. They lose by three. And I think it was the next year that they ended up stopping the clock uh, whenever there was a made basket in the last minute. So um, to some degree, you can thank this 93 Indiana team for a lot of the changes <laughs> in college basketball that we saw in the 1990s. Uh, maybe not the 35-second shot clock, but a lot of the other things, yes. Yeah. Well, well, thanks to them. Now we have to uh, stop the game all the time to see how much time's back on the clock, though. Yep. So <laughs> I'll take the blame I'll, for that. It's yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll thank Bob Knight for that one every, every, every time a game stops in the last minute. <laughs> that that comment about this game um, makes me have two Dayton Flyer comments real quickly. So we also have a rule change claim to fame with the uh, Luel Cinder dunking all over us in the '67 title game to then have that outlawed. Uh, and this uh, start to the tournament is basically an Ohio State game shy of an ideal Dayton Flyer run through the tournament, taking down Wright State and Xavier to kick it off. You know, it's funny you say that because I'll always regret what happened in the previous year in 92 because we were two results away from having a Final Four that would have been Indiana versus Kentucky and Cincinnati versus Ohio State. And, you know, this was... To me, this is the crucible of Midwest basketball, like this particular time period. And I can't think of a more 
enjoy I w- that final four. I feel like they would have, they would have, have had to have moved it out of Minneapolis and moved it to, uh, I don't know, Indianapolis or Cincinnati, you know, somewhere to be able to play that effectively. Um, but yeah, this was the time period where like these teams were, um, they were, they were playing about as well as we'd seen them play like collectively over the course of, of time. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll always, I'll always think about that, like that run. Cause you know, the, yeah, they didn't get Ohio state, but instead they got Louisville in the sweet 16. So right. you're still staying pretty close geographically to all of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That Louisville game was fun too. That, that was one, you know, Louisville was a team that Indiana played pretty regularly. Uh, they, they, they were still in the Metro conference, which would very quickly turn into, conference you or i guess it would it was the metro was there and then it dissolved and then a lot of the metro teams moved to the great midwest conference and then that turned into conference usa and then conference usa got a bunch of teams stolen from it so it's not nowhere what it used to be but that conference usa for a while was a pretty fun league uh with a lot of cool teams in it but louisville was always that was a fascinating uh rivalry between louisville and indiana because you know, uh, Louisville won the national title in 80, Indiana won it in 81. Louisville won the, t- the title in 86, and famously, at their victory banquet, the mayor of Louisville, um, you know, stands up and says, you know, the next time those Hoosiers come over the river, you know, the next thing they're going to see is this, and he holds up the big Louisville championship banner. And then famously, Indiana wins the title in 87, and Bob Knight at the victory celebration says, you know, I'd like to ask the, the mayor of Louisville to turn his goddamn sign around. Uh, you know, like that was it was it wasn't like Kentucky where it kind of feels like a religious feud. Like Louisville was they were a rival that you could respect, I guess, to some degree, um, even though like very different methodologies of coaching basketball and recruiting and so forth. But Denny Krem was always a really good coach. And that was a worrisome game because of the lack of Alan Henderson. And because you look at that Louisville team and you know Louisville always had great athletes. That team had three pros on them you know Dwayne Morton was on that team Clifford Rougier was on that team Greg Miner was on that team you know they had a fourth double digit scorer in James Brewer that year um and that game got chippy like there was this there was a point in that game where Calvert Cheney and and one of the Louisville players end up going chest to chest and there's double technicals called and stuff like that that was fun uh but Indiana was a superior team that day uh, running that three guard lineup and and kind of figuring out how to how to work things. They had Alan Henderson back by this point, but he had a huge knee brace on. He couldn't move laterally. Um, you know, so they won that game, and you were hopeful because at that point it's like, all right, well, hey, they, you know, we were worried, but they got through the Xavier game, they got through the Louisville game, they've won a Sweet Sixteen game, they got one more game to get to the national title, and they're playing a game against a team that they played already. And and frankly, a team that, you know, while they beat Indiana earlier has fallen off a bit from what they looked like earlier on in the season. And I'm talking about Kansas. You know, Kansas obviously beaten Indiana. Um, that was their second game of the year. They ended up, you know, I, I think they went, they were 15-1 and one at one point in the season. And the only game that they lost was on a neutral court against Michigan. But they struggled down the stretch in the Big 8 that year. Um, you know, they, they lost... They lost a weird game at Long Beach uh, that I, I still haven't gotten a good account. I don't know if there was like point shaving going on in that game or something. It was very strange. Um, you know, they lost to Nebraska, they lost to Oklahoma, they lost to Iowa State, and they've lost in the Big Ten, the Big Eight tournament to Kansas State. So you, you know, you're looking at this Kansas team and you're like, are they really good? 
And even on their side of the bracket in that Midwest bracket, you know, they'd beaten Ball State and BYU, who were meh. And then they beat Cal, and Cal was the surprise team. I, you know, we talked earlier about Jason Kidd leading a, a revolt. Uh, that was actually the previous year, I guess, against Luke Campanelli. Um, you know, so this is the year Todd Bozeman's in charge. Uh, they'd beaten Duke in the second round of the NCAA tournament. And that was a big surprise. And then they played Kansas in the Sweet 16. Kansas beats them handily. So you're looking at that, and you're like, well, they haven't had a tough road. Maybe IU has figured out a way they can win this game. And then it just didn't happen. Uh, and and it just that I remember that game, that Elite Eight game, very clearly. Um, it just you felt from the get go like Indiana was just one step slow against Kansas. Like they were they were just not going to have that one final thing that they needed in order to win the game. And it wasn't a free throw situation or anything like that. As much as it just was a lack of of. You know, I mean, you you look at the box score, and I've looked at this box score quite a bit. Kansas shot the ball amazingly. They shot 59.6% from the field in that game. They shot 64% from three. They shot 85% from the free throw line. Um, you know, I mean, they, they just – they Indiana didn't play the defense they needed to play in that game to win. And and it's not like Indiana was terrible. I mean, they, they shot – um, you know, they shot 45% from the field, which wasn't great, but they only shot 33% from three. Um, they got, um, you know, they, they might, they out rebounded Kansas, but they just couldn't figure out a way to keep Kansas from scoring. And, you know, they, they get a 23 point game out of Greg Graham. They get a 22 point game out of Cheney and they had 10 points out of Brian Evans. Nobody else is in double figures. Meanwhile, all five of Kansas' starters are in double figures. Um, and, Kansas was just the better team that day. And so, you know, you're hoping you're only, you know, IU was down four at half. You, you thought maybe they'd have a chance to figure out a way to get back into it, but they never solved um, Kansas from a defensive perspective. And they got to the end of the game and they lost and that was it. And, you know, it really felt, I, I think, you know, for myself and for a lot of people, it just kind of felt like there was, there was unfinished business that year that they were, they were never going to be able to properly address, um, you know, Alan Henderson, as big of a part as he played only being able to play three minutes in that game and just not being able to contribute. Um, you know, Knight started Pat Graham. And I think his idea was, all right, you know, we'll, that'll give us a chance to bring Evans off the bench so that he isn't having to play all the time, but it didn't work because Graham was ineffective. They, they had to lean so heavily on Calvert Cheney and Greg Graham for, their offense, and they just didn't get enough out of everybody else. Damon Bailey had an off night, um, so it was it was it was crushing. Like that was that was a tough loss uh, for me. It was a tough loss for I think everybody in the IU fan base. But it also wasn't a shocking loss because, as I mentioned, you know, a month earlier you lose Allen Henderson, and it it just it felt like it it probably wasn't going to happen uh, because you just didn't have a complete team and. Much like in '75, when you know you break, you know Scott May breaks his arm, and they make it all the way to the regional final, and you know they lose the game. You you're very disappointed as an IU fan, but you're not shocked because it's like, well, we don't have our complete team out there, and you know I think that ends up being the epitaph of the season. I, you know I don't think more depth would have helped. It certainly wouldn't have hurt. You know, and if if Chris Lawson doesn't transfer, or if they got somebody else in the pipeline that can take their place and play reasonable post minutes, maybe it's different. But, you know, at the end of the day, 
you're, you know, Alan Harrison was an A an A minus player or an A player that year. You're probably not replacing him with a C plus bench guy and having much of a difference uh, in a game like that against the Kansas team that was clearly Final Four caliber um, and, and had a lot of really good players on it. Do they win the game if they have their secret weapon from Yugoslavia? Oh, yeah. If rank goes on the team, I mean, they win by 20, no question. And then they go and they beat North Carolina, and then they beat the Fab Five in the championship game. It's uh, it's a coronation at that point, no question. No one talks about the Fab Five any longer. <laughs> yeah, we never see. Whatever yeah, happened to those guys? Yeah, we're doing we're doing thirty on thirties on Yugoslavia, and all their basketball players are pushed out to Indiana. It's not, yeah, it's not once brothers; it's once triplets. Like this is the you know, along with <laughs> Divac and uh, and Petrovic. This is the other guy. You know, I mean, yeah, it's That's amazing. Uh, yeah, no, that was that was a fascinating chapter to say the least. Do you think as time passes, are they the forgotten group that has had so much success there? I would say no. I mean, I think. I, I, this is it's interesting because even though they didn't win, I don't think this class is forgotten. Like, you know, anybody over the age of probably 32 or 33 at this point knows Calvert Chaney. They know Greg Graham. They they know Matt Nover. Like, it, it's not a forgotten class. It's, um, you know, I think you can make an argument that like the the 1980 class or the 1983 class are probably slightly more forgotten just because. Th- those teams like either one things right after or one things um, earlier on in their careers when it wasn't their accomplishment. You know, like the '83 class had Randy Whitman and Ted Kitchell. You know, and, and Whitman played for years in the NBA. He but he was a sophomore on the team that won the national title. But he, you know, but his senior year, IU won the Big Ten. They lost in the NCAA tournament relatively early because they lost Kitchell to a back injury. You know, this this. Um, this era of IU basketball, really ninety-one to ninety-four, it's it's not forgotten among people who were around at the time and people who were older, because it was the last real statement of greatness by a Bob Knight team. I mean, he had some good teams after that, but nothing that came even close to this. And you know, the that that particular sequence, you know, ninety-one, they win the Big Ten. Uh, they were co-champs with Ohio State. They lost in the Sweet 16. 92, they didn't win the Big Ten, but they went to the Final Four. 93, they win the Big Ten. They go 17-1, and one, which I think, that, you know, that doesn't get talked about enough. Like, to go 17-1 and one in an 18-game conference season, it just it wasn't done, you know. And, and you know, the, the closest that you saw teams come to it was the 18-0 that Indiana went in 75 and 76. And then even the following year, they didn't win the Big Ten, but they went to the Sweet 16, Um you know they were they were thirteen and five that year. I mean that run was among the most successful and impressive runs. You know it was the most consecutive regionals like Sweet Sixteens uh, met or achieved by a college basketball team during that period. More than North Carolina, more than Duke, uh, more than Michigan. You know so you know you, you take all that into account. I think that it's a team that it's remembered fondly and wistfully because I think everybody wanted that team to have something to hang on the wall other than a big 10 championship that said, you know, how great they were in the overall history of Indiana basketball. All right. So you've earned the highest possible uh, rate my professor rating from this episode. So 
Well, we'll get you out of here on this. Um, when will the the sixth banner be hung in Assembly Hall? And will Assembly Hall still be in use at that time? Man. Uh, you know what? Um, I I like what Mike Woodson's starting to build here. I, you know, I feel like to some degree it's taken 20 years of IU kind of wandering in the wilderness to be able to find itself again to some degree. And, you know, I don't know if the Woodson era will be successful, but it feels different in Bloomington than it has for the last two decades. Um, you know, so when will it happen? I mean, I, I almost hate to project. I, I'd love to say it's going to be in the next five years. Because I think if you're gonna if you things are gonna work in college basketball, you're gonna be able to turn things around quickly if you know what you're doing. And this is still one of the most supported basketball programs in the country from a financial perspective. It's got one of the highest recruiting budgets. It's still got one of the largest arenas, and and it's always full of people that are, you know, uh, violently cheering in support of IU basketball. And I think Assembly Hall is going to be around for at least another decade. You know, they had a chance to replace Assembly Hall in the last decade, and they instead decided to spend $50 million on renovating it. And I was actually in favor of replacing it. And I say that as a as a IU person. I've got three degrees from IU. I am a fourth-generation IU alum. Um, you know, my great-grandparents went here in, in literally the 1900s. And so um, I I don't I, I'll match my IU bona fides over you know uh, uh, up to anybody, um, but I you know I I did feel like as somebody I'll probably needed a replacement because it's an old arena. I mean it's it's structurally old, and before the renovation, it it really felt like you were walking into a huge high school stadium. Uh, it was a very very Spartan entryway and and Spartan facilities. They did a really great job with the renovation. But um, I do think at some point they're going to need to build the new arena that they've been thinking about since the mid-90s. Um, so, but I think in the next 10 years, we'll still have Assembly Hall. And look, I, you know, as far as IU and, and winning the sixth banner, um, it doesn't have to be as hard as IU's made it over the course of the last two decades, three decades, really. I mean, if you go back to, to this era that we're talking about with Bob Knight and, you know, kind of the last, the last hurrah of the top teams, um, you know, it's a different landscape than it used to be. I kind of feel that way about, you know, it's like IU soccer is in a similar boat. IU soccer won a bunch of national titles during uh, the the 80s, and they won several in the 90s. And, you know, I you know they were in the national title game this year, and they lost to a team that had a bunch of foreign imports and, uh, you know, played a very different style. They could have won the game, uh, but they didn't. I think for IU, they've, they've got to get themselves in a position where they are they they're trying they're not trying to be Kentucky they're trying to be Villanova you know they're they're recruiting uh three and four star guys they can be there for periods of time that they can build off of they're they're active in the transfer market you know i don't think the distance between winning a national title and being in the second round of the NCAA tournaments that great at this point you know i mean uh Virginia won a national title a couple of years ago, and they hadn't even been to the Final Four before they did. Texas Tech almost won the national title in that same year. Baylor won their first national title this year, and Gonzaga almost won it. You know, I mean, it's um, the, the margins aren't that huge. And IU's got all the natural advantages in the world to do this. They just need the right people in the right places. Uh, and I think Mike Woodson as head coach and Thad Mata as the, you know, the puppet master behind the scenes. I like 
I like this combination. I'm curious to see what happens with it, and I'm excited about it. So I'm hoping next five years, you know, they can get a, a couple of years of success in the tournament, get some more recruits in here. I think it could happen, uh, and we need it because, you know, as much as we love football and as much as we're excited about football being great, you know, for the first time in a while, uh, this is ultimately a basketball school. It's a basketball state. Nothing gal. I mean, I remember in that 2013, 2012 era, the uh, the the just the just the energy walking around Bloomington being in Assembly Hall, uh, it was it was unbeatable, and uh, I'd love to have both of those things going at the same time. The place might explode. Quick thoughts on the movie Hoosiers. So I think it's become somewhat unfairly derided over the course of the last decade. Like it's become fashionable to hate on Hoosiers. And I think to some degree it's because it's set in the 1950s and it feels like it it, has been, it might as well have been set in 1750 you know, or 1760. Like it feels like a completely different era. Uh, I remember when it came out in the eighties, it was, it was such a seminal sports movie. Um, and it's easy to lose sight of that. Like, you know, cause I mean, yes, Hoosiers is a little, it's a little hokey, uh, particularly growing up in Indiana and experiencing a lot of those high school experiences and, and uh, understanding the feelings of sectionals and, and what, what it used to feel like in the Indiana high school basketball tournament. Um, it's a, it's a great film. Um, Angelo Pizzo, who, you know, wrote the film and is a big IU person. I've, I've, I've had the pleasure of, of meeting Angelo and talking with him. He teaches some classes for us here uh, at IU. Uh, I think he did a marvelous job with the script. I think uh, David Anspaugh did an awesome job directing it's to me like the thing that Hoosiers has about it that people underrate is it's got a lot of secondary plots going through it, uh, uh, you know, alongside the athletics plot. It's not just, hey, let's overcome adversity, uh, which I feel like is what most sports movies boil down to these days. Like there's there's a lot of things going on in it that, that are helpful. It feels authentic as an Indiana person. Uh, and it's got some great basketball scenes in it as well. Like I feel like the, those are shot really well and and executed well. So, um, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll always stand for Hoosiers. I think Hoosiers is, uh, is a really, really good sports movie and, um, I'll take it over most any sports movie that's been made in the last 15 years. There you have it. That is the story. And these are the college basketball stories. Is it 100% accurate? Yeah, that sounds right. Follow us on Twitter at the CBB Stories. Also, see all of our inebriated storytelling podcasts as part of the Stories Podcast Network at the Stories Pods on Twitter as our guests rewrite the past across various sports. Alcoholic drinks are consumed voluntarily by our guests at their own discretion. Please drink responsibly. Hoosiers or Space Jam Two? <laughs> I haven't seen Space Jam Two. I know. Uh, so I, you know, you don't but, need to. I don't think. Yeah, that's the thing. No, I heard it's not. I it's not ideal. It uh, I got to be honest. It doesn't like, sound good. I was seventeen when the first Space Jam came out, and it never, like, it never even occurred to me that I should go watch that. Um, you know, so I've obviously I've seen bits and pieces of it, and then I've like essentially seen the whole thing since then. Uh, but like it, the. 
the level of it's I kind of feel the same way about the original Space Jam that I feel about Star Wars. Like Star Wars was important when I was growing up in the eighties and early nineties, but it wasn't like the cultural touchstone that it is now. And I feel the same way about that Space Jam. Like Space Jam was fine, but no one talked about it the way they talk about it now. They talk about it now like it was, you know, like Gone with the Wind or Citizen Kane. <laughs> and I, just, I don't, I don't totally grasp that, uh, guys. You know, it's it's an interesting thing. Um, I, you know, I guess we coalesce around these things, especially as sports fans and basketball fans. And it was in the original Space Jam, fun movie. Uh, certainly, but I don't have a lot of desire to see the current one, and I'm sure I'll see it at some point. I've got, I've got two girls uh, under the age of six right now, so it's it's in my near future. But it's it's not something I'll plan on watching. Let's put it that way. You looked like you were going to say something, Lynch. Um, no, I what well, I know. Well, I, one one other question. So give us give us you know. Uh, Jared and I were two and three years old during this year. During this year, but Calvert Cheney, obviously statistically, but give us a comp of a current or recent day, just the type of player he was. And you can do college, you can do pro, whatever. But give us a sense of just how great he was during those four years. It's hard to give a comp of Cheney, and like, and I, I need to do a better job of looking at player individual statistics and kind of getting a sense. Yeah. So let me, let me, it might be easier for me to give you a sense of who he was as a player. I mean, the that, free, that, that's, that's, that's what I mean. Not statistically, yeah. but if you yeah. were just watching yeah. him, I mean, even statistically, like just, just reading off his statistics, like the four years that he was at Indiana, his freshman through senior year, his points per game were 17, 21, 17 and 22. His shooting percentage overall his four years, 57% from the field, 60% from the field, 52% from the field, and 55% from the field. And that includes three-point percentages of 49%, 47%, 38%, and 43%. Um, he was, you know, and, and during that time also, he's averaging about somewhere between four and six rebounds a game. He was just, he was so amazingly consistent game in and game out from the first game of his freshman year until the time that he graduated. Um, he, you know, he was, you know, to finish as the all-time leading scorer in the conference by a pretty significant margin. That's why it's so hard to give a current day comp because you just don't see players like that anymore. Um, you know, so you could look at um, any one of a number of players that have left the Big Ten early that kind of fit that general mold and just be like, oh, you know, what would that guy have been like if he had been – at that school for four years and you, you just like you don't know like you know you you just it's hard to really get it your head wrapped around exactly how that would work um you know the thing about cheney you know he's six seven he was not like heavy set he was a really you know silky guard he uh guard slash forward he could move really well with the ball he could move really well without the ball and he just had this innate sense of where he needed to be on the floor at all times and he was pretty good on defense too like was he the greatest defensive player in indiana history no but he was certainly he certainly held his own and with the players that he had to guard you never worried about calvert cheney having to guard a guy and you know you compare him with someone like steve alford who was not a great natural defensive player just he wasn't that athletic Cheney had none of those issues. And so, um, you know, I, it, it, it's again, it's one of those where I think when you watch film of Cheney, he doesn't initially blow you out of the water because he's not a Glenn Robinson. He's not a Chris Weber. He's not this 
you know, obvious physical presence that is clearly superior physically to everybody else on the floor. But to some degree, that makes him more impressive because it's like, here's this rail thin six, seven guy that's just out there running around you, getting the ball and putting it up and putting it in the basket. Um, and, you know, he wasn't flashy. Um, he was a guy that he would make great plays. He would dunk the ball. He would do things that you needed to do that would get the crowd pumped up. But he was never um, he was never the type of guy that just sucked the oxygen out of the atmosphere. Like he was he was part of the oxygen, like he almost provided the oxygen to a large degree. And I, I part I I asked because I mean he had a long NBA career, but it was really it was a long brief because he did well when he was on the Bullets to start, and then he basically a journeyman from there not there on out. And I don't think people nowadays think of him as how you know he's the least, still the leading scorer in part, like you said, probably will always be the leading scorer. And just how good he was uh, in college, I think loses some. Um, use some sense of that just based off and you know, he, he wasn't, he didn't make a name really after his college days. Well, I mean, I think it's important for people to realize there were a lot of great college players during that era that just didn't, they, they, they didn't work in the NBA, but it was, it was a different time because, you know, at that, in that period to be a great NBA player was just a different skill set. And I mean, to some degree, I guess that's still the case. You know, you, you still see players that are really good in college that just their physical gifts don't translate to the way the NBA game is played. I mean, you you have to everybody's big in the NBA. Everybody's quick in the NBA. Everybody can shoot in the NBA. Everybody can defend. So to be an exemplary player, you have to either have to be uh, an ungodly great shooter from outside or you have to be a physical specimen that doesn't have an equivalent elsewhere in the league. And I think for Calvert, you know, you look at his NBA career and it matches a lot of other players that were really good in college during that time period and just never quite panned out. And I think for Calvert, the biggest issue was his size. Like he was six, seven, but he was built like a six, three guy in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, so much of what he learned in college, you know, the, the system he played in and the way that he, interacted with the basketball was it was based around screening and cutting and the motion offense. And that's just, you don't get that during that time period of the NBA. The NBA is very much at that point, a, a league that is based upon a lot of ISO uh, and a lot of um, individual creativity. And that's just not what his game was built off of. So I think he gets a lot of points for being in the NBA as long as he was and being good enough that, you know, coaches would want to have him on the roster, but um, he just didn't have, the physical gifts that you would need to elevate your game to the next level, to be a swingman or a two guard in the NBA. Um, you know, he's not, he wasn't as good as the shooting percentages were in college. He wasn't a Ray Allen type who was yeah. just like an absolute dead eye shooter from outside uh, or a Reggie Miller, or, you know, or whatever. And he also wasn't big enough to be able to be a, a three in the NBA during that period. When you think about the other guys that he would have been going up against. I've, I've really enjoyed this. Uh, this is exactly the kind of show I like to do. Um, so, and it's, you know, I mean, I've, I'm, I'm excited to, to hear the final product and I'm going to go back and listen to all the other ones you guys have done and kind of see how they yeah. all came together. So, so yeah, let me know if, if, uh, if you guys are around and you ever want to meet up and if you want to yeah. do another season at some point, I'm certainly game. So we'll yeah. make it happen.